Welcome to the podcast that unveils the future of investing. In each episode, we explore asset classes, trends and technologies with founders, investors and experts involved into shaping that future. Today, your host George Alifaris speaks with Carlos Mercado, the founder of Charlie Dow, a decentralized collective of data analysts, product managers, crypto experts and software engineers. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, can we start by understanding a little bit about Charlie Dow and mention as well, you know, a few principles about what's a DAO, please, uh, so that everyone comes on board. Yeah, yeah. DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations. That's the fancy word for them. Most of the time, it's just a group chat on Discord that might or might not be financialized with some crypto token or something like that. Charlie DAO is a decentralized collective. So we have about 400 members, mostly data scientists, product managers, software engineers, and some crypto people. The idea is that there's a lot of talent in Web2, especially highly technical talent. And we wanted to help them come into the Web3 world. So we focus on not really education, but more so like hands-on, learning together, uh, you know, talking about current events, developing new projects together with the idea that we can get people to go from idea to proof of concept really quickly and they can spin out into their own company. So some kind of like a fusion of, you know, education, hands-on learning, incubation, and acceleration and all that fancy words. And then, yeah, so our collective, you know, we're on Discord. We don't have a token yet, but it's definitely something in the pipeline. Yeah, it's cool, it's fun. That sounds like fun. It's such an interesting way to, to build a project to, I don't want to say launch a company, but to launch an, an economic um, enterprise. And I, I really want to understand this uh, better. But before that, I'd be very curious to learn about your background and what brought you yeah. to where you're at. Yeah, so my background's economics, did my undergrad in economics and history, went to grad school for economics, focusing on spatial econometrics, did a few years in federal government consulting, a lot of public health consulting, studying childhood blood lead poisoning prevention, you know, Ebola outbreaks in East Africa and things like that from a network analysis. You know, that was cool, but the problem with public health is often the data is pretty messy and there's not very much of it. So when I was getting into blockchain, being an economist who like, you know, and Tony studies history and really liking the idea of the blockchain, the idea of crypto and the idea of, you know, decentralizing things and automating out some of these risks, you know, this was any financial crisis where you didn't know anything about these loan qualities and things like that to having more transparent, publicly available data about how people are interacting in the system. I thought it was really cool. And being, you know, coming from the network analysis lens and seeing the blockchain's data, which really is a network, it's a network of transactions and different addresses all interacting. It made a lot of sense to me. So I was getting into crypto. I was around a little bit in 2018. After the crash, I left. I wasn't really in it for the tech at that point. In 2020, I came back, saw the rise of DeFi summer. Uh, rise of nfts and i've been involved ever since um and then the three things we do at charlie dow related to that are you know we have three prongs our focus is we want to evangelize web3 help people understand the pros and a lot of the cons we talk a lot about you know working on you know websites and having lots of article flows and like content podcasts conferences appearances all that stuff we want to build DeFi products especially permissionless ones that work autonomously we we want to build public goods things that people can just use and trust that just work by themselves and I also want to analyze the blockchain and analyze the communities on the blockchain. So analyzing NFT communities, integrating off-chain and on-chain, which is my specialty. Like all that data analysis around networks is like my personal specialty. And then we've brought in, you know, a lot of talent in the software and product space who can make those things fun to actually use. So we have, you know, like our shiny applications, we have reports, articles, tons of that stuff. And yeah, that's my background, just writing about these kinds of things on LinkedIn mostly. 
Yes, and we'll definitely put the links to that because I found your comments particularly insightful and inspiring. And that's how we connected. And one of the things that I'm curious about, you just mentioned, you said you're bringing in people and they participate and they're very clever people. So how does that process happen? So how do you bring all those talented people on board? What's the process in Charlie Dow? Yeah, so we kind of work on a like word of mouth basis. So we have this board. It's not super public. People learn about it. We They meet people in the collective and they just join. Once you join, you just have access to the channels where we talk a lot, talk about current events, share resources, share articles, share links. The idea being that everyone who joins offers about two to five hours a month pro bono. So we have a lot of people who've said, oh, no, I have hours available at a small amount of time for that stuff, which is useful for you know, hey, review this white paper for me, or hey, look at this new thing that just came out with your... Of course, something to note is that, you know, communities are hard to build, especially around lack of money. So, you know, right now we've been on a very volunteer basis, which for me has been a lot of, you know, we have like weekly office hours that we do, so people can come and give us pitches, and we help people with ideas, do tokenomics reviews. So a lot of stuff we're doing for free, and we're going to get away from that soon. You know, now our next phase is really finalizing our content pipelines, developing you know that podcast formally and tokenizing you know we want to launch a token so that people can have a measure of activity so, you know when you post an article hey thanks for writing this here's some token or hey if you want to support the DAO, but you don't necessarily want to write and contribute but you want to help you can you know buy the tokens which will allow someone to sell them for a different you know sell them for dollars or eth or something so we're going to financialize because that is important for that exact reason but what's important to note is that you know we're financializing after we've developed like a kind of a foundation, which I think a lot of people, you know, they join DAOs that are financialized a little bit too early. And what we see there is, you know, these token prices on crypto so correlated that a lot of these DAOs are struggling because they have tokens that it looks good on paper. They have a huge market cap, all this stuff, but in practice, you know, they don't have the foundation to really be generating value and capturing that value in their token. So we're going to, you know, we should expect a lot of DAOs to struggle over the next few years. Uh, that's natural. That's just creative destruction. But we're trying to avoid that by being free and, unfi and unfinancialized at first. Just going back to also to your role. So I find it really fascinating, this perspective that you shared with us, because it's not just about crypto. It's also about the future of work. How do people get involved? And also, I think it can be a much uh, more efficient process than having to, let's say, interview someone, trust very much the process of interviewing, etc., without seeing them at work and then committing to work with them. That's a traditional interview process, whereas here it's fully organic. I don't want to overstate the simplicity of it, right? It is really hard. You know, DAOs who do mm -hmm. want to, they do want to hire people and they do want to pay for work. They want to pay for community managers. They want to pay for these vendors and services, you know, paying for Cloudflare and website hosting, all these things that they pay for. It's really hard. Um, and they still do those interview processes. I think the important thing to remember is that what blockchain has done, especially what decentralized finance has done, is it's made it possible to have money natively on the internet. So you can transfer value to people without doing a lot of the overhead. So you don't have to like, you know, obviously still do tax compliance stuff. You should still file all the forms and all that stuff. But, you know, being able to pay someone a few hundred dollars in tokens for an activity, it reduces a lot of friction for how people can productively coordinate. But it's not a free lunch, right? You still have a lot of headaches. You know, you got to trust people. When you give them money up front, it's not super easy to have. You don't have a lot of good escrow services. It's hard to judge the quality of outputs. So it's definitely still difficult. But yeah, the big thing is that it's it's, it's, fr it's as low friction as possible. So if you trust mm -hmm. someone, you can give them the value. Uh, and that's good, I think, for that microeconomy as a whole, that people can coordinate in this like trustless, but also trustful mechanism. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's a model that I think is developing and is perhaps not fully formed or there hasn't been a, a template that has clearly emerged. And going back to this organization and governance, so how do you see your role as the founder? It's obviously not the CEO. Should we say the leader yeah. of this community? So I, I think uh, people wonder that too, right? Like, is it weird for a decentralized group to have leadership? I don't think that's weird. I think some stuff like, so let me put this in a negative way, I guess. A lot of DAOs are LLCs with a Discord. And that's very different, right? So like, I'm not gonna, I actually, I like Uniswap and I use Uniswap a lot, but I also pick on them sometimes because they're massive. They have multi-billion dollar treasury in their own token. But what does it actually look like? So there's a lab that's an LLC, a traditional business structure. That structure has equity. They have insiders, they have venture capital. The equity is held by those insiders. And they have the community that has this token. The token doesn't really do anything. It doesn't get revenue. You can use it to vote on some stuff but its token price isn't very high. And so you do have these problems of, okay, well, there's the inside group with the leaders and the core team and the equity, and they have all this value. They're getting paid by venture capital. And then you have this DAO of community members that are doing the kind of free work, the word of mouth marketing, the voting on proposals, generating proposals and stuff like that. You know, they're not really getting a lot of value capture there. So it's very tough to have this insider outsider relationship within a DAO. My goal is to develop Charlie DAO into or a decentralized process for doing things like the evangelism and building DeFi products and doing analytics. Now, the next step, of course, is developing a token. And then step after that, of course, is to have that some kind of inside group. You have to have one, typically like a multi-sig signer, someone who controls the treasury of the tokens and having that to be somewhat decentralized for how people get paid in these tokens and things like that. So the goal is to really decentralize me out of it, but someone has to pay for the shiny servers and the website hosting and, you know, manage the discord and, you know, all that stuff. And typically the founder and the inside team are doing that at first, but it's about, you know, the progressive decentralization and getting to your end goal state, which for us is people autonomously writing, autonomously building, building their own little small subgroups to build things. We're calling them guilds. So having these guilds that can have a, a micro treasury, a piece of the treasury, and they're trusted to hand it out however they see fit and they can have their own rules for that stuff. You know, DAO of DAOs kind of approach is our vision. But yeah, you do have to have like leadership early on. And I don't think that's strange. I think what would be <laughs> strange is having a single person in charge of all the money. And I think that's where we have risks when the money, you know, when you're financialized too early, there's a big pile of money somewhere and choosing who gets it and how much. But for you, decentralization is a goal in itself, right? Because I see that a lot as well, that people always want to be decentralized. It's a credo and not really, there's nothing that's, there's very few or hardly anything that are properly 100% decentralized. And I think it's like a part of the culture, but from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just a cultural thing on your side because it's the essence of what you're trying to build. I, yes. And I think the reason for that is, you know, decentralized things have benefits. They also have costs. Mm. So if you look at, you know, cloud computing, like you just spin up, you go to Amazon Web Services, you spin up a, a computer and it's permissionless in some ways, you know, you can just pick whatever you want to spin up and they'll spin one up for you, but it's not decentralized. You know, Amazon runs the data centers and all that stuff. The benefits of decentralization are you get more, you know, more like strength, I would say, you know, you're harder to take down. It's difficult to destroy Bitcoin because so many, there's so many miners globally it's a decentralized network. When China made Bitcoin illegal or whatever, the hash rate fell 40%. Mm. 
but the network didn't have any yeah. problems because it's decentralized. So having that, like, you know, censorship resistance is really important. And also at the same time, you want to have decentralization because you can do more when you're decentralized. If you have a hundred writers, you should have more output than when you have five paid writers. Like that should be how it works out. Even though you might have less concentration of time per writer, the goal is that you get more out of it. So the benefits of decentralization are scale in some aspects of it. The costs are, of course, it's much cheaper to do addition. You know, two plus two is very cheap in Amazon Web Services. It's somewhat expensive on Ethereum. On Ethereum, an addition problem costs three gas units, which is to pay the market value of a gas unit to even do. So decentralized computation is very inefficient and very hard. So there's always those trade-offs to make. But for me, decentralizing is about building a persistent system that can just function on its own for hopefully hundreds of years. So a lot, you know, my true freeze project, which I'm coming out with, is designed to do that. And I try to focus a lot of my developments on building things that can just go forever without anybody watching them. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks a lot for that, because it's, I think it's easy to get lost into the decentralization mantra and everybody wants to be decentralized without truly understanding why and what needs to be decentralized and, and what not. So I think you made it very clear. This is a, an area that's fascinating to me. And again, I think it, it's really relevant for the future of work because that, that for an individual that allows to, to no longer rely on the full-time employment and perhaps contribute to a lot of things and stuff like that, potentially. Yeah, I think there, uh, there's definitely some problems with that. Like, I do think there's a lot of potential in the future of work in being more flexible. My worry is that, you know, you know, I'm based in the United States, so I'm very focused on that. But just a small history lesson, right? Like, the ability, you know, working five days a week is less than, like, 100 years old in America. Child labor laws are new in America, like, in terms of a 100, 200-year time scale. So, you know, we fought very hard to get labor protection, health benefits, you know, retirement, pensions, like we worked very hard to build a labor system that treats labor fairly. And if the, I don't think the future of work can be everybody becomes a gig contract worker because that's not really sustainable for their own financial flows. Um, and also it's difficult to coordinate. Like it, it is much harder to coordinate a proposal that says, okay, here's a proposal to pay this person this amount of money this month. And then every month you have to have all these people vote on everything. That's not really super sustainable either. So there's definitely a lot of trade-offs with the future of work. What I, what I would like to see is just more options and more competition. So I don't look at decentralization as, oh, like Amazon bad and these companies bad. I, I look at it more so of like these companies offer a product and a service in one context and these other decentralized products offer products and services and payments and labor relationships in this other context. and the future of work should be the freedom to flow between those when it fits you. You know, I, I do want people to have full-time employment when they want it and they want to work 40 hours a week or maybe a little less or a little more. They get paid a consistent salary, they have benefits. Like, I think that's good stuff. I just think we just also want to have lots of competition on both sides so that people can freely enter and exit those relationships. So that's just my one caveat on the future of work being like crypto DeFi stuff because it's, a lot of that stuff's not going very well. No, no, it's it's more of an organizational uh, aspect of it and a positive outlook on the gig worker, which kind of means a potentially more lifestyle elements into it. But let's leave that aside. I think your dual approach or multiple approach makes a lot of sense and there's so much more to cover. So let's move on if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we have to talk about is the current events and the current, the, the big news 
is has been well the demise of Luna and Terra, the stable corner protocol that went with it. I have um, a lot of story. thoughts on that. <laughs> yes, there's a lot. So give us uh, your top line. So the top line is very simple. Lying is bad. And if you looked at the Terra documentation and the marketing and stuff like that, like they lied. They said that UST and Anchor was a savings account and it was foolish for anyone to be saving their money in a bank at 1% interest when they could be earning 20% low risk on UST. And they lied. I mean, they, they lied about the risk. They misrepresented, you know, what everybody knew about how the coin was backed. And there was a lot of research on like how death spirals happen in this use case. But let so just to break it down really quickly, right? Like it could have worked. That's the other thing. It could have worked. Essentially, the way the Terra blockchain worked worked originally was you have a blockchain that sells blocks, blockchain sell blocks, and you pay miners or validators to include your transaction into those blocks, and that's called the gas fees. The Terra blockchain does not use a free market auction approach to price its block space. So its block space is extremely cheap. So there's not a lot of demand for it. They created a stable coin, had it pumped up with huge interest rates, and it was all backed by this gas token, Luna, which is only value is because you use it to pay for block space. So you have built this stable coin whose entire backing is one trust, two, the marketing, and three, demand for the block space of the block. It doesn't have that much demand for block space. And that's what we learned the hard way that people don't actually value that block space, so it's not a good measure of backing another token. So yeah, I don't know how much technical but detail you want to get into, but there is- Not too technical, but you mentioned something interesting. You said, oh, it, it could have worked. What's the scenario there? Yeah, so it, it could have worked. Here's the scenario. If you have a blockchain that has a very large amount of demand for block space, such as Ethereum, for example, the number one smart contracts blockchain on the planet, right? People pay tens of millions of dollars every day to have access to that block space. If you have a lot of demand for block space, you can then have a token that is backed by that demand for block space. So for example, using the ETH token to mint a stable coin. But to do that, you have to have very high collateralization ratios. You have to say, oh yeah, you know, we're gonna have $1 tokens that's backed by three or $4 of ETH. The problem with that is it's very inefficient, but it can work. If you have a purposely inefficient token relationship backing a stable coin with huge collateral ratios and you have a lot of demand for that block space, you can get away with a stable coin that is completely you know that's completely algorithmic. But no one wants that. Nobody wants to pay a lot of money to have, you know, a 25% efficiency stable coin. What they want is to have high efficiency and stable coin access. And the only way that works is really not for it to be algorithmic. It has to be backed by something else. You know, you look at MakerDAO and DAI, which is like the decentralized stable coin. It's backed by ETH and USDC and some other things like that. It's like a money market fund. Essentially, it really is. It's an unregulated market money market fund token. Like that can work because you have multiple backing sources that are also backed by, you know, demand for this block space. So it could have worked. If Terra was very popular, and it had a lot of demand for block space unrelated to the US. If people just wanted to use Luna for all kinds of things, then what would have happened? Well, what happened was as the market cap of UST fell because people were selling it and Luna was getting minted to back that thing, if there was demand for block space, people would have just bought the Luna. Oh, UST is 95 cents. 
it mints a bunch of Luna. Everybody wants Luna because they want this block space, so they just buy it up, buy it up. That didn't happen. And because there isn't that much demand for block space, there isn't that much demand for Luna, as Luna was minted, it hyperinflates, and as its price fell under $30, under $20, under $10, under $5, the problem just got worse and worse and worse. And I actually didn't expect this to happen this way. I, I actually thought there was demand for block space. So I saw Luna go up from like $1, $3 to $90, and I was like, oh, people are using this chain. People like this blockchain. People are building things on it. You know, can ETH be $5 ever again? I'm not sure it can, because there's so much demand for the block space that as soon as ETH falls under 1,000, you just have waves of people buying it. So it, it's all backed by something, and it's, the, it's backed by the demand for block space. So that's really how it could have worked. It just didn't, because nobody was using Terra at the amounts and volume to support it. And really, a lot of people made it very simple. They just said, look at the market cap of UST, look at the market cap of Luna. If the market cap of UST is bigger than the market cap of Luna, we have a huge problem. And that's what happened. The market caps just didn't make sense anymore. And people were calling I have an alternative. Yes, people have been calling it for, for months and maybe we're very clear about it. But I, I thought there was an alternative scenario where this thing could survive and therefore, you know, really transform the, the magic internet money into something valuable is that when they were talking about collateralization, my perspective is that if they had decided to gradually not say we're going to buy bitcoins, but buy well, fiat and things like that, I think there could have been a magic transformation to... No, if you have a $30 billion thing, which is backed by no demand for block space and a bunch of confidence, right? How do you convert that to being backed by collateral? You have to go buy $30 billion of backing, right? With what money? With How do you buy $30 billion of backing for a $30 billion heir? Like how well, you, well instead of buying Bitcoin, from? so they, they had a lot of money in the treasury and instead of buying Bitcoin, they, they could have bought something else. It wouldn't have mattered. Buying 2 billion Bitcoin versus $2 billion wouldn't have mattered at the end of the day. Like, And the other problem is the whole, the, the game plan was fundamentally flawed. The, the game plan was, and you know, Doquan was very clear about this, his game plan was infect all the blockchains with this problem so that Luna becomes too big to fail, and if it fails, it takes on everything else. And we saw that happen. The, the failure of Luna destroyed a bunch of things on Avalanche, because Avalanche partnered with Luna, which led to certain mm. things allowing Luna as collateral for their products. When Luna collapsed, suddenly Oracle problems started happening, and I lost, I didn't touch Luna. I never used the Terra blockchain, but I was on Avalanche depositing in Blizz Finance, which is a lending borrowing protocol, and I got robbed too. So like their plan was to infect every other blockchain with this with this stable coin and so that it would be too big to fail. And we're lucky that it didn't that it failed without being too big to fail. Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective to move on to more general things. I think the failure it's a huge failure, right? We'll talk about Yeah, uh, I know, it destroyed everything. Form. I would say that DeFi, except of a drop in value, etc., a few well, significant collateral damage. DeFi is standing strong, or, or or do you think this has pulled back many years? Yeah, no, I think it's done two or three years of damage, honestly, because mm. one, it was just a blatant lying about what it was, you know, the, the blatant fraud is a huge problem. Crypto is already but, but clearing But clearing out the fraud is a good thing, no? You cleared out one fraud, but the whole space has so many problems. Like, crypto has already been known 
if you ask a random person on the street about crypto, they're going to say three things. Scammy, rug pulls, cash grabs, destroys the environment, stupid, ugly NFTs. There's a ton of problems in crypto. The major problems in my perspective are, one, decentralizing finance is boring. Like, finance is a boring thing. Most people don't care about finance. So, like, my grandma's never going to open up MetaMask and deposit liquidity into Uniswap V3. That's not going to happen. She's not going to get, she's not going to know what an AMM is or any of that stuff. So, like, DeFi is a fundamentally important thing. Like, automating the financial system, making it more transparent, putting it on chain, having this publicly available shared data layer of the blockchain data, like all that super important work, but it's also super boring. What happened was, you know, a bunch of Ponzi's came around, get rich quick schemes that brought a bunch of people in, those people got burned. They got burned on altcoins and stupid, you know, food yield farm summer and all that stuff. NFTs came in, which again, like NFTs brought a lot of users because NFTs are, you know, they're social clubs and people want to be involved in like a social environment and stuff like that. But also they were huge cash grabs. You know, they absorbed tons of money out of the space. Like Yuga Labs, you know, has absorbed hundreds of millions of dollars out of the crypto space. That's not funneling anywhere. So if you look at it from economic and economies need money to flow. It is the velocity of money that leads to growth of a system. And crypto is beginning attacked on all fronts because the people taking money out are the cash grabbers and like these, you know, bad NFTs. And that money just exits the system, which means it can't flow. It can't have any velocity. So like crypto is structurally damaged from this tether thing. It's structurally damaged from like the bad optics and like the fact that all the regulators are gonna come for stable coins now, which stable coins are super important for the ecosystem. All the NFTs yanking money out of the system, the hacks, which a lot of them are like, you know, state actors, the North Korean Lazarus group is stealing hundreds of millions of dollars out of DeFi from these hacks. Like it's just getting destroyed. And if you take out a hundred million dollars out of crypto, it does more than a hundred million dollars of damage because you've taken out like money that isn't flowing anymore. So the economy is like permanently getting like, it's getting permanently damaged. So yeah, it's, it's huge. It's a huge problem for the whole ecosystem. And I'm not sure DeFi is still strong. Their DeFi is built correctly. A lot of it is built correctly, right? Ave is working. But what happens is that when money isn't flowing and you don't have that velocity growing, the stagnation itself is also bad, right? Because where do yields come from in DeFi? They come from people taking leverage who want to deposit ETH and borrow USDC so they can have, you know, they can take leverage and borrow tokens and take out loans and all that stuff. And like, the traditional banking system works the same way. Traditional banking works because banks generate loans, which allow capital to flow and thing the economy to grow. So when crypto has all these problems with money not flowing and the prices are falling down, if the prices are falling down, you can't even take leverage because now you might get liquidated. The problems are just like, there's so much. I, I think we've really lost two or three years of progress over the last like six months. Okay, that's definitely something that's worth, you know, rediscussing another time, but I want to move on and talk about Charlie Dow. Can you tell us how it's built? First of all, yeah, you know, right now we're not financialized, so we don't have a token yet, but we'll probably be on a mix of Ethereum and Polygon. The way most DAOs work, if you want to make a DAO, is you want to have a bunch of people get together with a goal of some sort. Our goal, again, you know, we have three goals, Evangelize Web3, develop DeFi primitives that work on their own, so people can spin out into their own companies, and then do analytics. So reports, shiny applications, you know, Python, you know, applications and things like that. So, you know, we're using a bunch of different traditional products, Discord, Twitter, GitHub, we're using traditional tools. You know, when we launch NFTs or we launch tokens, we're probably going to use, you know, Ethereum and Polygon. The reason for that is 
it's really important to be Ethereum virtual machine compatible because that gives you a lot of movement across chains. So being Ethereum virtual machine compatible gives you access to Ethereum, Polygon, Phantom, Avalanche, the rollups, Arbitrum, Optimism. And that's very different than, for example, building on Solano or Cosmos, where you get the benefits of using a good programming language like Rust, as opposed to using a kind of weird one like Solidity. But so that's like important. We chose that for that portability to be on multiple chains and be flexible on that front. And then, you know, how we're going to work is, you know, we're already working. You know, we have people who are, you know, they're on LinkedIn, they're on Twitter, they're developing content, you know, they brand themselves as a member of Charlie Dow. And we're going to flow all of that into our website, into our funnel, so that we can do things like have, you know, hey, if you want to come to our office hours and pitch us your idea, we'll give you a token a tokenomics review. You can buy our NFT to get a tokenomics review. You can buy this NFT to get some hours of advisory. You can buy this NFT or buy these tokens to pay for a custom analytics report about your NFT community or your DeFi community. We can do some off-chain analytics. You can pay us this. Like, we want to have an ecosystem of our own for all of our services, our access to our experts, our access to our analytics, our applications and all that stuff. And you mentioned the first spin-out is about to happen. And yes. it's called True Freeze. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, the first, you know, Charlie Dow's been not very old, less than a year old. So we're still ironing out our kinks, but our first team has spin out, which went really well. Uh, I did this one because I was founding the group. So I was also just trying to lead on what projects actually should come out of this and how should it look. So I wrote a white paper. I got feedback from people in the DAO. I found a developer, a front end developer, and someone who wanted to do soft, you know, solidity development, who was very good at other, pro, you know, very good at programming in general. We made a small core team. That core team made an LLC. We spun out officially, so we made our own company called Deep Freeze LLC. That company then developed True Freeze, the product from the white paper. We got funding separate from that. You know, we've had venture backing, friends and family around, all that stuff. And so with that, we developed True Freeze. The idea of True Freeze is hodling, you know, holding on for dear life. You know, everyone who likes Bitcoin loves to say that, don't sell. The problem with that is you don't get paid to do that. You don't get paid to hold. And it's hard to hold because you're holding an asset that's very volatile. Bitcoin's going up and down like crazy. So we wanted to create an ecosystem that said, look, how could you get paid to do nothing, right? That's the dream, right? Getting paid to do nothing. The way to do that is to prove on chain that you will not sell an asset. You will hold it. So proof of patience is what we call it. And we want to develop a market so that people can pay for proof of patience. So just as a quick example, you know, if you hold Ethereum and I hold Ethereum and it's worth a thousand dollars, I don't want you to sell because if you sell, the price goes down and you selling hurts me because when you sell and the price goes down, my $1,000 of Ethereum might only be worth $990 now. And so there's a market there for people who are be willing to pay for other people to not sell. That market could exist. It just doesn't exist. So that's what we've developed. True Freeze is a way that people can put a, a promise on chain to lock their asset for a certain amount of time. And when they do that, they mint a token for doing that. So we have, uh, you know, we have a, it's really a complex ecosystem a little bit, but the goal essentially is I lock ETH for one year. In exchange, I mint the token that represents my deposit for one year, certificate of deposit. We have an NFT that does that. I could sell that NFT if I wanted to. If I do that, it acts exactly the same way as a zero coupon bond to people in the finance world. And then you get paid a yield token for doing that. So we pay people for creating zero coupon bonds of Ethereum. 
that second token has value because you need it to withdraw early. And if you withdraw early, you pay penalty fees. So we've developed like an on-chain zero coupon bond market with the idea that early withdrawals pay fees, the fees go to stakers of another token and all that stuff. And it's all, the design is that this works forever. It doesn't need anyone involved. People create these things, these CDs, they get paid to do it. They can sell the token because other people want to buy the token, lets them withdraw early. If they withdraw early, they pay fees. The fees go to the stakers of another token and it's all circular. You have a whole circular ecosystem that just functions all on its own. And that's a hard description to say, but proof of patience is the idea. No, no, okay. I, th I think I get it because I understand the concept of zero coupon. The one thing that perhaps I'm less clear about is who is the other counterparty. Um, if they don't have access to the token so they cannot lend it themselves or stake it or get revenue for it, how do, why do they pay? Yeah, so, let's, so I can break that in a little more detail. So I'll give you a full example, right? So you could imagine Bob has, you know, a few thousand dollars, right? Bob has ETH and he wants the price of ETH to go up. He has two options. He has one option now. Right? His only option now is he can buy ETH and hold it. Because when you buy ETH, you contribute to its price going up. That's called price impact. When you sell ETH, you contribute to its price going down. That's also price impact. What we want to do is create another mechanism for Bob to help the price of ETH go up because that's what he wants. He wants to pay for ETH's price to go up. For him to do that, we developed this other token called the Freezer ETH token. And Freezer ETH has a mean. One Freezer ETH is minted when one ETH is locked for one year. So that's the proof of patience. If you lock ETH for one year, you mint a token that represents that. The Freezer ETH token in finance terms is the tokenized discount rate of ETH. How much would I have to pay you to not do anything with mm -hmm. your ETH for one year? One freezer ETH token is that. So now what are his options? He could buy one ETH and hold it, or instead he could buy a bunch of the freezer ETH token. And what that does is it has a proof of patience. By buying the freezer ETH token, he confirms that the circulating supply of ETH is now lower because people cannot sell what has been locked. So this is a totally new market where now instead of, I wish I could pay for ETH's price to go up. Don't we all wish we could do that? I wish I could just pay and ETH's price doubles. I wish I could pay for that because I could have a profitable scenario to do that. Now you can do that. You can buy the token that is proof that ETH is out of circulation, that some proportional amount is out of circulation. So why, you know, why does Alice do this? So Alice has ETH. She might want to sell it, but she's willing to lock it if she can get paid to do it. So she locks the ETH and mints the freezer ETH token. She sells it to Bob, and now Alice has been paid to keep ETH out of circulation, and Bob has had a bigger impact. Before he could buy one ETH and keep it out of circulation, now he can pay off Alice to lock away a bunch of ETH for one year. And that's a, it's a total, it, it's hard to think about, but it, it, it really bridges a market between people who stop selling, please stop selling. I would pay you to stop selling. And now we have a mechanism to do that. Now, of course, th there's lots of derivative benefits of this. The biggest derivative value of this is you now have a means of buying ETH with ETH because Alice made an NFT that represents her ETH deposit, her certificate of deposit. Let's say she locked 50 ETH for one year and she has an NFT that has 50 ETH par value. I, Carlos, could go buy that at a discount. I could buy it for 48 ETH or 49 ETH. I profit immediately. All I have to do is wait patiently. Alice profits because of the freezer ETH yield token and because she sold her nft for ETH, and you know that discount is that she nets profit bob's happy because he got to reduce the circulating supply of ETH by buying the yield token 
So it's like a, it's crazy that it's three different market participants, but there's tons of benefits of this, man. Like being able to buy ETH with ETH by having zero coupon bonds of ETH is massive. Being able to affect the circulating supply of ETH by paying people to lock their ETH out of circulation is a brand new market that doesn't exist. Having a freezer ETH token that's the tokenized discount rate of ETH and you get paid upfront for doing it. So you get upfront yield for locking ETH out of circulation. It's risk minimized DeFi. We have no price oracles, no collateral, no liquidations, no no staking, no nothing. There's like the only risk is smart contract risk. We don't have a yield farm. We're not passing the ETH to anybody else. Like huge opportunity here. And on top of all that, you have all these other derivative benefits because now every single NFT marketplace in the entire ecosystem, because you've brought zero coupon bonds to DeFi, every single NFT marketplace is an options platform. Hey, I locked 50 ETH for one year and I have a, I'm willing to sell it for USDC. You just created an option. You created an ETH USDC option when you do that. When you make a listing of your NFT in USDC, that's what you just created. Every single NFT marketplace is now a bond market. You can buy these NFTs at a discount and you can redeem them at maturity for their par value. When you do that also, you can now buy and sell the NFT version. What's the benefit of doing that? There's zero price impact and there's zero slippage. If you want to sell a million ETH right now on Uniswap, you're going to lose 0. 0.5 to 0.75% just from fees, slippage, and price impact. Now, you can just sell the NFT version of it, and it's now an over-the-counter trade. Every single NFT marketplace is now an OTC shop, fully decentralized. So it's hard to describe quickly. Creating kind of an OTC market for decentralized object it's uh, it's never going to be that, that simple but it's a fascinating perspective and i think we got the gist of it and we're also going to put some links for people who really want to find out more and read through it carefully before investing and as i do want to move on and we're running out of time what's the most exciting things that you think can happen and what's your short-term outlook now that you mentioned that it's taken two years uh, to step back two years after terra yeah so what I'm excited about is for people to have access to things they don't have access to. So for example, I look at Aave as like a huge leader in the space. Like I really like what Aave is doing. Being able to, for example, deposit ETH and borrow USDC. And most people have probably never done a pawn shop before. They've never gone and put a watch down and borrowed money and then went back and paid for their watch again. No one's ever done that. They're like, that ability to take out loans against your own assets is very powerful because you know it's not a taxable event. It gives you access to liquidity. You still own your asset. That's huge to me. And I want people to experience that. I want people to be able to buy something and have access to liquidity from doing that. So I'm really excited for the big DeFi protocols to just get better user experience. You know, for people to have access to things like money APIs, Yearn Finance, for example, they have automated strategies for all kinds of tokens. Let's say you don't want to touch DeFi. You don't want crypto. You don't want ETH or Bitcoin or whatever. You want dollars. In most countries, in a lot of countries, so there's 190 countries in the UN. There's 180 currencies recognized by UN. Most of those currencies are not very trustworthy. They inflate like crazy. If you live in Argentina, you're only allowed to convert so many pesos to dollars each month before you get in trouble. So even if you don't want Bitcoin or Ethereum, I am very excited for DeFi to bring people the option of what currencies they want to hold and use. And if that, you know, there's cost to that too. You know, there's US financial imperialism concerns with the dollar taking over the world. There's lots of problems with that. 
but I would rather people have that choice so that they can choose how to hold their value. So I'm excited for people to access USDC and die. I'm excited for people to access yield farms like Yearn to put in their value into this automated strategy to earn four, five, six percent instead of one percent. I'm excited for people to have an out, you know, the opportunity to deposit assets into a strong protocol like Aave and borrow against it and take liquidity and leverage or whatever else they want. So I'm excited for people to just access very fundamental parts of finance. And I'm less interested in, you know, the unregistered securities, which is like a lot of the NFTs who are like, hey, give us a thousand dollars and we promise we're going to make a video game and a metaverse. I'm really not excited for that stuff. I think a lot of that stuff is actually really bad for the space. It's extractive. It brings new users. But if those users are giving money that leaves the ecosystem forever, that's probably a bad thing. If those users never actually convert to the good side of DeFi, holding dollars instead of their bad currency, depositing an Aave, taking loans against themselves, experiencing better than a four or 5% yield. That I think that's a bad thing too. I'm optimistic on the fundamentals and pessimistic on what's getting the attention, but overall I'm optimistic. Sure. So if I sum it up, you, and I just want to go through those, those concepts that we throw around all the time. It's not so, it's really about DeFi. It's not so much about Web3 and the metaverse. It's about what people can do with their finances, about empowering them to do so much more, right? Than what they can do with their even actual dollars. And I should know, I am understating what NFTs can do. There's a lot of really cool ideas, like being able to have your wallet address be your digital identity and carrying that with you across platforms. Like I have, you know, I'm charliemarketplace.eth. That's my digital identity with my Ethereum address. I can use sign in with Ethereum to access a lot of different internet services. So you get, there's lots of really awesome things that are possible with the blockchain and NFTs, digital identity, you know, data sovereignty, being able to have portable identity across different applications, not giving up all your data to every single service that wants to sell you stupid ads. You know, NFTs as proof of things on chain, right? Like having evidence of activity on chain so you can get rewarded for your past activity, which is what airdrops, you know, do. There's lots and lots of potential in that space. You know, you know, the future of work and all those things. I personally think a lot of those things are much farther away than we think. So I'm trying to focus on like the practical aspects of DeFi, access to dollars, access to like good economic choices more so that I'm focused on like this idea of metaverses and the future of work and digital identity. Stuff. Although I do think things are really cool. So I should caveat no, no, my I, negatives. I absolutely, you know, we all, we all love what's happening, but I have to say, you know, personally, I also fully agree on this. I think what's short term, what, what, what we can do now with our money. And obviously we have to learn about it, right? It's not about just taking risk, but we, at least we have the possibility of doing that as well as how it could make, the fine, many aspects of the financial system more efficient is really what excites me about this space in the short term. And I feel like it's happening now. And, you know, what you're creating as well with True Freeze, it's kind of a new tool for people to do things with their money, something that, well, actually mimics the, the traditional the TradFi, but is accessible to everyone. Yeah, that's what makes me think very positively about DeFi and how it's so important into the whole spectrum of the future of investing across asset class, across TradFi and DeFi. So I think this is just the beginning of this conversation. We've skimmed through a lot of things, Carlos, but I thank you so much for your insight. And we'll put all the links to you know your project in the show notes. 
And I just want to wish you really all the best with what you're doing at um, Charlie Dow. Yes, thank you. Project. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Wonderful. Stop the